Welcome to Behind the Scrubs, an original podcast series produced by UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. I'm Aspen Drood, manager of Conheis Center for Rural Health and Nursing, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Taylor, Conheis Director of Advising in the Office of Enrollment and Student Services. Hey, Jeff. Aspen. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's been literal weeks since I've seen you. And as always, we were off for Thanksgiving, right? Did you have a good holiday? It was okay. It wasn't too bad. I ate too much. <laughs> but then, you know what you call a Thursday when I ate too much? Thanksgiving. Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's been a while. You are a world traveler. And I'm more than a little jealous about it. So where did you go? Yeah, as I was spending Thanksgiving here, I left on Thanksgiving and I flew to London. I was there for a day and then flew to Berlin, Germany, was there for two days, flew to Paris, was there for two days, flew to Florence, was there for a day and a half. And then I rode trains down to, uh, we did Venice, Naples, and then Rome. Yeah, and then we flew back to Berlin and back home. So I got home two days ago, and it was a great time. It's my first time in Europe, so it was great. It was a really long trip, and I'm really exhausted. But I'm happy to be home. I'm happy to be back with my dog. But I'm really glad to experience the different culture of Europe because it was very different. Yeah, my Thanksgiving time was very similar. I went to Ben Wheeler, Texas. So it's a lot of ways it's the Europe. Of East Texas, they say out there. It's wonderful. Rural? Quite rural, yeah. But it was great. Now, ever always a good time to spend with family. I love it. Speaking of world travelers, Jeff, who do we have as our guest today? Oh, we have a fantastic guest today. Our guest today is Dr. Ziad Ben Talib. He's an assistant professor in public health and the director of the Nicotine and Tobacco Research Lab at UT Arlington. His research examines smoking cessation and the epidemiology of tobacco use with a focus on investigating the health effects associated with exposure to emerging tobacco products such as water pipe or hookah and electronic cigarettes. Dr. Ben Taleb, welcome to Behind the Scrubs. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to have you here, and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing all that you have to say about your research and your life, but let's just get started this way first. Can you tell us a little bit about your public health journey, your life experiences? Yes, Absolutely. My journey to health started back when I was a kid. Actually, I was always fascinated with anything that has to do with health. I was always attracted to biology kind of classes and topics, and that landed me at the end at the medical school. I joined the medical school, and I started learning about different subjects and how this amazing human body works. However, past my theoretical classes, and once I started doing clinical and even after I graduated and started practicing, I realized that I'm not really inclined into the treatment paradigm of medicine, which I have to say that it's really important side that we need in the society. But for me, it did not really fuel my passion. I was really feeling that the relationship between a doctor and a patient, it's too late to intervene when the disease already started. And no matter what you do, a lot of the time, it just disease progress, or maybe you start, you just start managing the disease rather than preventing it. So I was, you know, that I wanted to do something different is has to do with prevention rather than treatment. So I started looking around in public health. So this was around the year 2007, 2008. So public health was still in early stages globally, although in the United States was starting to thrive. So after 
I graduate, I start looking for scholarships to explore other areas of medicine that I can tap into it. And I had a scholarship to do a program of occupational medicine and health in Italy. And during that program, I was introduced to public health as one of the subjects. And that was the first introduction for me with public health. So I was like, wow, that's what I really want to do. Population health, preventing diseases, managing the health of population. That, that diploma, that program took six months. After I finished it, I went back to my country, which I'm from Libya. So this country in North Africa, this is where I was born and raised. This is where I go to medical school. And after I come back from my trip from Italy, I started now searching for opportunities to study and pursue education or postgraduate education in public health. So I come across this amazing scholarship opportunity that was offered from the U.S. Department of State through the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli, Libya. So I applied for the scholarship and through a series of interview and application deadlines, and I was fortunate and blessed to get selected. So I got this a Fulbright scholarship that offers two years full scholarship to pursue a postgraduate studies in a topic of your choice in the United States. I was immediately like, of course, public health. I started searching universities and applying. And eventually I got an admission from a Florida National University in Miami, Florida. So I got accepted and I traveled. I came here to the United States in summer of 2010. I started my program in the fall of that same year, two years after. I graduated with a master in public health. So throughout this program of uh, master degree in public health, I got introduced to all aspects of public health, environmental health, epidemiology, health promotion, biostatistics, health policy. It was just for me, a lot of things to learn, a lot of amazing things. And I got drawn into research, started doing research with some of the faculties there. And after I graduated, it, it, for me, it was no brainer. I wanted to get more. So I applied for a PhD. I got accepted in the same university and I, I did a PhD in public health with a concentration of epidemiology. So during this time of my PhD program, I was fortunate again to be mentored by a pioneer of nicotine and tobacco research, who was a faculty that was there and I was able to join his lab. So during this time, my relationship in terms of my research with nicotine and tobacco has developed. And that was the right match for me because where I come from in Libya, and I think this is the same for many other countries, tobacco use is really high and there is no interventions in place there are no centers and no research. So I felt that this research topic really is rewarding for me personally. I can contribute to research in the United States, but also globally. And this is how I become a, a scholar of nicotine and tobacco research. Now, after I finished my PhD, I did a fellowship, two years fellowship as a postdoc. And then in 2019, I got accepted as a faculty or got hired for a position here at the University of Texas at Arlington as a faculty of public health, joining the Department of Kinesiology. Fantastic. Quite a story there. So you mentioned about the, in, in your home country, how smoking is rampant. So was that what drew you to that particular interest or was there some other element of smoking and that kind of drew you to that part of research? First of all, smoking cigarette is the leading cause of preventable death worldwide. So that alone was more than enough for me 
to know that this is a great impactful research area. But this is to start with. Secondly, as I mentioned, back in my country and many other countries, there's no regulation, there's no policies. It's an open arena for these tobacco companies to market and sell their tobacco products to people who not necessarily informed about the health and adverse effects of smoking. And also they don't have access to programs and resources that can help them quit. As we all know, it's an addiction. And even if some people know that it's harmful, but still they cannot really quit if they don't have the available resources and support that they need. So that was that motivation for me to pursue this area of research to provide scientific evidence that can be used globally to create tailored intervention because we need to know that every country is different. They have cultural profile, they have cultural diversity that need to be addressed when we create these intervention programs that they can help them quit. So that was also one of the main elements of my dissertation work actually to create culturally sensitive tailored smoking cessation programs. So this is how I started in this field. That's really neat. I actually didn't know that smoking was the leading cause worldwide. I was not aware of that. So that's really interesting. That's a fun fact. Can you talk a little bit about more some of these intervention programs and what you've learned through your research and how you have recommended some of these implementation programs and maybe give an example of a specific country, maybe even Libya, since you're from there? Yeah, absolutely. There's different ways to quit smoking. One of the ways, which doesn't require anything, is called dirty. So just stop. So around 5% of people who try this, they are successful. As you can tell, it's low percentage. So then we need other tools to use in order to increase this rate to higher rates of quitting. So there's two main different categories, the pharmacological uh, cessation aids or behavioral cessation aid. Now, based on the literature, a combination of these two is the most effective. So people who have used these two supporting tools, behavior and pharmacological, so some dr- a combination of some drugs and some counseling, either group su- support platform or individual coaching up the highest rates of quitting smoking. So around 20 to 23% of people, this combination of tools can quit, which is a really good quit rate. Now, as I mentioned, for example, some of other countries like Libya or some other countries in North Africa and in the Middle East, there are some other tobacco products that are used in line with cigarette, like for example, hookah. In, in my dissertation work, what I concluded at the end, which was used in future programs that they are applied now there, is to integrate elements in their cessation programs that include water by or known as hookah as one of the tobacco products that need to be targeted at the same time when we target cigarette. And this actually increased their rate of success because a lot of people, when they quit cigarette, they now jump to hookah. I say, I do it once a week or twice a week. It's not as bad. But if you include that in their cessation program, give them tools to quit both, they have higher success rate. And by the way, this is the same approach can be translated here in United States as well, especially that the hookah is becoming popular among college students. And also we have e-cigarette as well. So people who quit cigarette, they might actually jump to a different product, either cigar, e-cigarette, or hookah. So it's important to create intervention that target multiple tobacco products at the same time. So I was reading an article that said vaping is as bad as smoking, as cigarette. Let me see who the author was. Oh, it was you. 
<laughs> I read that Yim told me that. So can you give us some information and some background on that research and kind of what goes into that? What are some of your findings uh, regarding vaping and the potential dangers of that as well? Absolutely. So this research that I start doing here at UTA, and just to start answering, responding to this question, I want to say that UTA is such an amazing place to do interdisciplinary research. So when I came here with my expertise in tobacco and nicotine research, I found a lot of faculties who were interested to collaborate because they're doing physiology studies. They're looking at hearts, different organs, and all these cardiovascular endpoints and studies. And they were like, we really want to see, can we can merge our work with your work and see the effect of e-cigarette on all of these physiological systems. So this project, as you just mentioned, this study was a collaboration with Dr. Matthew Proppers here at UTA, Rodman Kinesiology. And we did the study at my lab and his lab, collaboration between the nicotine and tobacco research lab and his lab. On this study, we recruited a number of cigarette smokers. These are cigarette smokers. We wanted to test the notion, as you mentioned the title of the study, e-cigarette, a safe alternative to cigarette when it comes to the cardiovascular function. So we recruited a number of cigarette smokers who are young, but healthy, and we invite them to come to the lab twice, one time to smoke their usual cigarette and one time to vape e-cigarette that we provide to them. So before and after they smoke either of these products, we assess different items, including subjective feelings, how they feel before they smoke cigarette, how they feel after, and the same for e-cigarette. We also have some biological assessments, including the cardiovascular function. Namely, we look at how healthy is their vascular response before and after the smoke. And we did the same for the vascularity of the brain. We wanted to see how the vascularity of the brain changed before and after they used these products. So... At the end, we found that e-cigarettes affect cardiovascular function, namely vascular, peripheral vascular function and cerebral or brain vascular function to the same extent like the combustible cigarette. So it's not correct to tell people that e-cigarette is safer than cigarette, according to our findings and to any other accumulating evidence. In general, it might carry less number of harmful substance, but our human body is very fragile and sensitive. I always give this example is, you cannot tell somebody it's safer to jump from the third floor compared to the roof of the building. You're still gonna break many bones and might die. So this is basically uh, what we found, that e-cigarette is as harmful as cigarette when it comes to the vascular function in our findings, in our study. Now, this study in our future direction, we want to do this, run the study along longitudinal meaning over time. So recruit a number of cigarette smokers who also vape and follow them for a longer period of time, like a year or two years. This is going to be our next step. On the short term, we found that e-cigarette is as harmful as cigarette. That's really interesting. I know that, I think it's the American Heart Foundation, if I'm thinking correctly. I know they have the heart age calculator. And smoking, whether it, no matter what kind of smoking it is, whether smoking cigarettes or vapes or hookahs, I know that when you enter that you smoke, it increases your heart age, right? And if your heart age is older than you are, then that means that you're at a higher risk for heart disease, for heart attack, things like that. So cardiovascular issues. So that's really interesting that you're doing work to figure out, especially over time, like how these things are, are impactful. 
So yearly, you guys have uh, an Eliminate Tobacco event here at UTA. So I was able to attend the one last year. I, I think you guys just had the one this year. Is that right? Or yes, yeah, okay, yeah. awesome. I wasn't able to attend that one. I think I was out of town, but but the one last year was really great. And you guys had an amazing turnout. Yep. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and what you guys do and who you partner with and the outcomes of that and your goals for that specific event here at UTA? Obviously. So this is in collaboration with Dr. Becky Garner and also Student Health Services, uh, where they do have resources to help students learn about the health effects of using tobacco products, but also they provide resources for students to help them to quit if they are users. So in this collaboration between our program of public health, namely the undergrad program and the health student services, and myself, also a regular speaker at this event, we try to provide information to our UK community here because it's always important to start local with our community to disseminate the knowledge, to translate the research into information that can be digestible by everyone and that can lead to uninformed actions, right? So I always mention in my talks and in my interviews that in public health, our goal is not to ban people from doing things but just to provide information for them to make an informed decision. That's the goal. So it's been a successful event, and, um, and there's a lot of activities. They also have a day where they do barbecue, and they say, smoke this, not that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, the brisket, but not the cigarette. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a, very, it's a great event, and we do it every year, and uh, we're going to continue to do it. Fantastic. So it seems like with the vaping piece, you, you said mentioned in your study how it's equally and healthy for the effects on the body. Would you argue that it's somehow more dangerous because it's currently perceived as a safer alternative? Like people are leaning to that a little more and there's a higher risk at that. Cause everyone really, my kids, I've got, I mentioned them every episode. I feel like I've got some middle school twins and cigarettes. Absolutely not. And even vaping, but they say absolutely not. But something makes you think that, that they would the cigarettes are full stop out, but I feel like there's people out there that think, oh, this must be better in some way. Again, because you're not burning things with fire, which is a weird way to say that. No, and I'm say and that. maybe because it came after cigarettes, right? So like we had cigarettes and then they're like, oh, they're bad for you. So then vaping comes and they're like, oh, it can't be as bad as cigarettes because now we know cigarettes are bad, right? So yes. So this is it's a very important question. Thank you. This is a, a still center of a debate, not only for the general public, but also in the scientific field. A few countries, I would say, took a different approach where they adopt the harm reduction approach where they say, oh, at least for people who are cigarette smokers, they cannot quit. They have a product that can use that is potentially at least less harmful to some extent for some organs. So I do understand that there is a notion that e-cigarette might be an alternative for cigarette smokers who are not able to quit cigarette. And they're going to continue to smoke cigarette anyway, so why not give them an alternative? I do understand that, but I have an issue also with it because other sectors of the society are using e-cigarette who are not cigarette smokers, and namely the youth. We have middle school students, we have high school students who are vaping. Those were nicotine naive, so they were never introduced to nicotine before, if not because of e-cigarette. 
So this is where the, the problem is e-cigarette had is being utilized mainly by non-cigarette smokers. There are some cigarette smokers who are using it, but it's also being utilized heavily by youth and students, namely. And also I wanted to say that this is a new generation of addicts, of nicotine addicts that is added to the market. They're going to continue to use tobacco products that has nicotine throughout their life. If they're not provided with resources to quit, or if we don't do something about preventing others. So I just want to mention that nicotine is one of the most addictive substances in earth. And why I say this, although there's some other uh, highly addictive substances, because a lot of these other substances, you cannot really function with it. People get overdosed, you know, they cannot function in the society, but with nicotine, it's highly addictive. But you can still function with it. So it's almost like a chronic addiction. It's so hard, it's sticking, and it's so hard to go away. So that's why it's a serious problem, and that cannot be taken lightly. That is, that's a really good point. Now, I, I am interested in your thoughts on people that are in recovery to other addictions, whether it's cocaine, um, alcohol, and a lot of folks in recovery in that nature use nicotine as the step-down addiction. It is one you can function with so then they can be used to curb these other appetites, as it were. How would you best address folks that are trying to not take these other things and are, are trying to transition off, but using nicotine as that step down? Do you think that's very effective or are they just trading one for another? That's a very specialized area, uh, is, uh, the harm addiction arena. And it might be there's some case use for e-cigarette in some special situation for uh, special circumstances. But I think for the on the population level, and that's what public health is about, on the population level, e-cigarette is uh, a public health threat. And when you look at the net benefit of providing or introducing strict regulations that make sure that e-cigarette is not in the hands of minors or youngsters, this overall will have a higher benefit to the society than having it available or accessibly to everyone. Now, for these special groups or population, the e-cigarette might be a tool, maybe in combination of other modalities. Yes, but this is for a specialist who is dealing one-on-one -on -one with these. So this is that's why I mentioned population-level studies. On the, on the population health, e-cigarette is a public health threat. Now, on the individual level, there might be some, you know, some utilization for e-cigarette. But again, overall, I think it's it's a very dangerous to not regulate e-cigarette and leave it uh, accessible to the public. With that being said, and this is a really good segue into talking a little bit about advocacy. I know that UTA is a tier one research institution. We do a lot of research here, specifically the College of Nursing, which includes kinesiology and public health, we talk a lot about how we can utilize the research that we do here to advocate for policy change on certain things, right? And so do you do any kind of advocacy when you do your research? Do you take it to any of our government leaders and say, hey, this is a problem. This is, like you said, this is a public health emergency. This is something we need to talk about. Are youth are being affected? And if so, like, how do you do that? What do you do? How would you suggest that our listeners may do the same if they're also doing research? That's a great question. And indeed, working so with 
and advocacy is important. It's one of the most important aspects of public health. Now you need to translate your work into policies. However, people who are specialized more in, in community health and health policy, they are more into going actually in the fields and going to policymakers in order to convince them to change policies that can protect public health when it comes to vaping, for example, or other tobacco products. But in my case, Marisir is in at providing or creating scientific evidence that can be used for regulatory actions. So, for example, if the FDA is the entity, the federal entity that is regulating tobacco products in the United States. Now, for the FDA to regulate any specific products, they need scientific evidence to guide their regulations. So, that's where my work comes into a play. So, my studies have this regulatory tobacco science nature embedded into them. This is how I design my studies. This is how I draw my conclusion. Everything is to provide scientific evidence to the regulatory entities, more of them to regulate tobacco products. So this is my way of translating the research into policies to provide that evidence and that it can be used directly by these regulatory bodies. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. In rural health, alcoholism, obesity, smoking, they're all increased, right? And we see that a lot in the data that I look at specifically involving rural health. Obviously, that's my jam, right? think it's really interesting and I'm really happy that you're doing this research and I'm glad that this exists here at UTA. I first heard about it a year ago at that Eliminate Tobacco event and since then I've, I just think it's really interesting and I'm really thankful that you're doing the work here. So thanks for that. Thank you. Yeah, I've got a question I absolutely have to ask. Please. I'm dying to know this one. You've shared a little bit about it before we got to go in Today, you, you shared a, a brief part of a story, and I would love for you to share it with our listeners. You were banned in Miami from what exactly? You were persona non grata for doing what? <laughs> yes, yeah. So this happened in 2018. A lot of these tobacco companies, they actually have their, their conferences and expos all around the world, including in the United States, in major cities like Vegas, New York City, Miami. So I was doing my fellowship at the time, 2018, and that was the World Vaping Expo taking place in South Beach. So I was like, this is a great opportunity for me to go and see what's new, what kind of products are now marketed, and what kind of marketing strategies are being used. So me, myself, and another PhD students, we went to the expo, we started exploring, and we found really some promoting tobacco products in a way that has been, they're using the same playbook of the big tobacco companies. So the way that I advertise the, their products, they're trying to attract people who and correlate, you know, flavors, candies to tobacco products. For example, one of these vendors are Expo Boots there. They have a table where they have a number of candies that has the same flavor that the e-cigarette have. Namely, I remember it was bubble gum. So they have these bubble gums there that you can chew and taste. And we'll tell you, this is exactly how our product will feel or taste. So we documented all of these marketing strategies. And another violation that we find in the expo is that they were not checking age limits. So anyone actually can just walk in, beta, whatever was the ticket is, and just walk in. So we documented everything, their marketing strategies, the violation that we observed there. And after we published our work, it was published in Tobacco Control. This is a major journal in our field. They have a blog for the expo 
where they created a whole page with our pictures, me and the other BC students, and saying that they are banned from going to any expos in the United States because they are a threat. They say, why did they think we need to check their age? They look old enough. So were you, was it your, like a picture they stole from the website or is it like surveillance photo? No, they Googled us and, okay. and our, we, we have our pictures, for example, in LinkedIn or sure. ResearchGate or one of Actually, I have a lot of similar stories. Once I've been contacted by, that was when I was a student doing my PhD work. I was publishing even then. I got contacted by someone who wanted me to book, to retract a, a letter that I wrote about tobacco products that he said, I think what you wrote is not correct and can you please retract it and also we like to do research we like to fund research and obviously i didn't even respond to him i talked to my supervisor told me you know they do this with people who are just starting the career they try to you know recruit them to do research for tobacco companies so did he have a cowboy hat on was it the marlboro man in disguise yeah so you're you're are you still banned uh, yeah, I think for after COVID-19 and also FDA has really come up with some regulations that what's really the landscape for throwing tobacco events has changed. They still have tobacco productive events here and there, but not on that same large scale that was before COVID or during that time in 2018. One point that I would like to add that really raised the attention of the public that e-cigarette vaping is the silent beast in the background. That was just before COVID, if you remember, around August, July, summer 2019, so before the COVID hit, there was an outbreak of vaping-related lung injury. It was called E-Valley. Around 68 young people died. More than 2,800 people were hospitalized. You're talking about 17, 18 years, young, healthy people in the ICU. So that was out here, though, you know, it was an outbreak. It was, it was an epidemic of vaping uh, lung injuries. So I brought this up because e-cigarette is a drug delivery device that can be used to deliver other things, not necessarily nicotine. For example, it's used to deliver THC or cannabis as well. And a lot of these devices also can be customized. You can add your own liquid. You can put different stuff in it. And for that specific lung injury outbreak, it was because it was used to vape THC with nicotine. Either you, they were buying liquids from the black market, and then people are making e-liquids in their garages, and they were using solvents and things like vitamin E acetate, which is a compound that can be used as a solvent to extract THC. But this compound can be put on the skin, is healthy, maybe in some type of food. But when you put it in the lung, it becomes sticky like honey. And it even causes acute injury to the lung. And that's why a lot of people died because of that. So I just want to mention that e-cigarette. Why we need to regulate the uh, e-cigarette? Because it's not only used to deliver nicotine, but can be used to deliver other things as well, including THC and other substances. So it's a, it's a very ever-evolving landscape. And that's what I'm trying to do in, in my lab is to keep up with what the industry is doing. I think I have two questions based on this. One, when we were chatting before we started the podcast, you were talking about how a lot of people have the flavors, but the flavors are actually one of the problems, right? So that's my first question for you is to just mention that. I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about why you shouldn't be inhaling flavors, what the difference is. 
And then two is, have you done any research on like cannabis and the effects of smoking cannabis on the lungs as compared to cigarettes, buka, nicotine products? Absolutely. These are great questions. So for the first part about the flavors, so these flavors are not newly created. The technology or the science behind these flavors is already there, has been used for decades for the food industry. All these chocolates, all these processed desserts, and they have the chemicals already. But these flavors can be normally digested or tasted in the taste buds, but they are not safely inhaled into the lungs. The lung is not designed as a physiological system for other substance to be inhaled into the lungs. So it can cause a number of injuries. Actually, there's one flavor in particular that posed a huge problem. I think it was around 2017. I think it was a vanilla flavor. So that the chemical format of that compound caused a series of lung inflammation and fibrosis that shows in an x-ray as a popcorn. So they call it the popcorn lung. So when doctors look, they've never seen this before. They look at the lung x-rays for people who are complaining of chronic symptoms of pneumonia and a difficulty in breathing. When they do lung x-rays, the doctors see these popcorn-looking lungs, and they were able, through research, to trace it back to a specific flavor. So this is just an example, right? I think it's very important to convey the message that flavors are meant to be tasted in their base buds, not to be inhaled in one. This is not logically acceptable. Also, I did some research on flavoring for hookah as well. So this, this is a different tobacco product. So I'm just going to pivot quickly. So the same strategy has been used across different type of tobacco products, namely hookah. Hookah was not here though in the United States on the West. It's a tra traditional smoking method that originated in Southeast Asia and Middle East and was used by elderly. So it was straight, dry tobacco burned by coal. It's not popular at all. But two or three decades ago, they introduce flavoring into the hookah tobacco. So they infuse it with molasses and honey steer and all these fruity flavors. So they make it wet. So it burns for longer time and it's, it's smooth, it's less harsh, it's more enjoyable. This is why it became popular in the Western United States. And it's particularly common among college students for some reason. And that's why usually when you Google hookah bars, or hookah lounges, usually they are close to college campuses because this is where the uh, customers are. So I just wanted to highlight the fact that flavors are being utilized as one of the main attracting elements of tobacco products to in, inside new customers. Now, going to your second question, I think it was about the overlap of cannabis and smoking. So I did some research on that. I did not do research on the health effects yet. And this is mainly because of some of the regulatory restrictions on using cannabis, even for research. I'm hoping this can change over time so I can do more research on it. Um, but I did some epidemiological studies on the overlap of tobacco use and cannabis use. And it's really common among people who are between the ages of 18 to 24 to use tobacco products to consume marijuana, namely e-cigarette, cigars, and hookah, surprisingly, which I actually published the first study that document the use of hookah to smoke cannabis. 
Yeah, so this is a very new or emerging area of research that me and other collaborators and other universities have been working on. I think it's important to address cannabis at the same time while we address vaping and tobacco product use, especially among young people. Yeah, it's still another form of smoking, right? It's important to, like you said, to not only try and stop one, but try and stop multiple versions, right? I have a theory going back to your hookah. So my theory is that more college students are smoking hookah because it's more of a social setting thing, right? So same with college students drinking alcohol, right? Drier percentage of college students start drinking alcohol around that time. And that's because it's more accepted in social settings, right? So hookah lounges, you go and you sit for hours, right? And you smoke with your friends and you have a good time and you eat and drink and, and you smoke. So I'm sure that at least that's typically what when you walk past a hookah lounge, you see all these young folks sitting around the table and they look like a tent. They've been there a while. Yeah, that's my theory on that. In terms of cannabis, do you see any of these regulations changing? I know the state by state, they're changing pretty regularly, where southern states were pretty hard on on some of these things like smoking, reproductive health, things like that. Do you see that changing anytime soon? Or is there any word around the research? I don't have any more information that you do when it comes to the legislations and whatnot. But for me, what's important is that at some point, it will be accessible to do research on it from the research point of view, because that will be helpful to change regulation in any direction based on, that's why I feel that maybe some different exception can be made for research purposes. Yeah. Currently, I think even federally is not available, not only state level. So I think this is federal, that if you need to do research on, for example, cannabis, there's a really many levels of paperwork that you need to go through in order for you to get a sample that you can use for research. But I think it's, as you mentioned, it's ever-changing. And I think with time, there will be more opportunities to work on this area. Yeah, I think that's great. It's being talked about, right? It's like you said, state by state. It's definitely being talked about, especially in the younger generations. I knew that that's a big reason why a lot of these laws are being passed in other states. I definitely look forward to seeing it hopefully become available for research and seeing what you do with it in the future. Yeah, man, thank you. Dr. Ben Talib, thank you for being on Behind the Scrubs. Thank you for having me. It's just an amazing conversation and I'm, I'm happy to be part of this podcast. And I'm cheering for you guys. It's amazing work you're doing. We're cheering for you too. We can't wait to see what you do. Thank you. So Aspen, what did you think about all that? Yeah, I think he was a really great guest to have. I think when we originally talked about doing this second season on public health, we really were focused on the innovative research that people were doing in public health. And I think that he's definitely like the definition of innovation, right? He's done work in multiple countries. He takes a global approach. And so I really appreciated the things that he was saying. And I'm really glad that we have him here at UTA to do this research. Oh, for sure. It's having someone who's just an expert and seeing where things are going. Like just knowing that this, that he's going to be on the front lines of everything is really encouraging. And just to personally speaking, you know, this is a random question. I have never smoked or done a, what do they call them, a vape. There. How about you? Vapor hookah. Or eat none of it. Not such none of it. Interesting. Yeah. So I worked, I worked at a hookah bar in college, actually, which is where my theory comes from of being mostly a social event. And I think me being a part of the millennial generation, I, I, I do think that it's very common. I have friends who still to this day, they'll occasionally smoke a hookah when they're in social settings. And it, it's not so much an addiction. 
or a problem, I would say. It's just a social thing. But actually, from Dr. Taleb's research that I heard him speak about last year at that event, he did say, he mentioned in that, that smoking a hookah for an hour is equivalent to 100 cigarettes. And so that was really pretty shocking for me, right? Because I'd smoked hookah in college, not, not consistently, but I worked at a hookah bar. So it was, that was pretty common. And like he said, you really don't know what you don't know, right? Like, and so the point is not to make the decision for you. The point is to inform you. And so I think that's so important for anything really that you're doing preventative care on, not just this or alcoholism or obesity or whatever it is, right? I think that informed care is the best care. Oh, for sure. I always threaten my kids, I'm going to start smoking. That's what I do. They just so they'll know they want to keep me around. I think the thing for back in the day from your generation, Jeff, I think the thing was that they, your parents had forced you to eat cigarettes. Uh, okay. First of all, I get this on the record. My parents never forced me to eat cigarettes. Well, did they catch you smoking cigarettes? No, I, okay. I never I That smoked. was the punishment. See. That was the punishment was that like my stepmom, she got caught smoking at a young age. And her parents literally made her eat cigarettes. Eat that was cigarette. the, and li- that was like the common thing was that when your parents would catch you smoking, they'd make you eat cigarettes so you would never want to eat them again because it'd make you sick. I just remember Not seeing, to say that that works. I'm just saying. I just remember seeing my grandma and my step granddad. She had Chesterfields. He had Lucky Strikes. And they were copping. I know. They were old people. <laughs> They're my grandpa. <laughs> and so they would smoke and just cough all the time. I just hear that. Stud was Lena- just, yeah, it is not, it's not what you want. Yeah. If you look up like the comparison of lungs, like a healthy lung versus a smoker's lung, it's a disturbing photo, honestly, like just looking at them. So it's, I'm glad that he's doing the work that he's doing. I'm glad that he's bringing increased awareness, especially to students who are just smoking hookah in social settings, because even if you're just doing it once a week, it's still affecting your health. It's still affecting your lungs. Right. And so Again, not trying to make the decision, just making sure that you're informed about what you're doing and how it's actually impacting your health and how it could impact your health in the health in the future, I think is just really great and is super important. For sure. So thank you to everyone for listening to our season two, third episode of Behind the Scrubs. Join us this season as we continue our conversation with key voices in the public health community discussing their areas of research and innovation. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To keep up with UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation and its various programs, visit us online or connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at UTA Con High. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye, y'all.